In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. The wedding at Cana is a symbolic narrative, which is to say the events happened exactly as John describes, and yet John's description shows that there is more here than meets the eye. Our Lord's first miracle takes place on the third day, a detail John gives us in part to point to the resurrection on the third day. What Jesus does in turning water to wine foreshadows a reversal of the curse. Death is turned to life. Weeping is turned to joy. With Jesus, a new creation has come. On the third day, John tells us, there was a wedding. Both Augustine and Luther point out that our Lord here honors the estate of marriage, not only by attending a wedding, but by performing the first of his signs and miracles there. It's no secret that in our culture, God's gift of marriage is under attack. And the large catechism reminds us what's at stake. It says, God has most richly blessed the estate of marriage above all others. He has bestowed on it and wrapped in it everything in the world. For marriage has the highest importance to God, so that people are raised up who may serve the world and promote the knowledge of God, godly living, and all virtues to fight against wickedness and the devil. Thus far the large catechism. And no wonder why the devil attacks marriage and has the family in his sights. He doesn't want Christians to beget more Christians. People who will grow up to serve the world and promote the knowledge of God. And that, dear husband and wife, dear mothers and fathers, is the high honor and office to which God has given you and called you. You're not called to raise future Olympians or professional athletes or future billionaires or even the next president. You have been given a much higher office and calling. You have been given the office and calling to raise Christians, immortal sons and daughters of God, to teach your children the fear and wisdom of the Lord. It's true, of course, that some cats can't be herded, and some children grow up and despise and reject God's grace. What can we do about that? We can pray. It's a difficult job we parents have. That's why the entire church on earth stands with us and the entire church in heaven prays for us. The whole church of God asks God to sustain you in your marriage and in your raising of people who know the Lord Jesus. It's hard work, but from heaven's vantage point, it's glorious work. Of course, the devil and the world do their best to make it seem as though this work is worthless, inglorious, and not as good as working outside of the home on important things, quote-unquote. But on the contrary, the fourth and sixth commandments show that nothing is more important. So the devil despises marriage and children. He works to damage marriages. He works to cause divorces so that the one flesh union is torn apart and children are scarred. 
all the rainbow stuff going on, the abortion and gender confusion and sexual promiscuity movements, all serve to destroy marriage. Whatever the devil can do to keep Christians from begetting and raising more Christians. And then when we as individuals sin, or even sin grievously or otherwise fail, then the devil wants us to think that that's it. Now God hates us, and he will never forgive us. So he seeks to drive us into unbelief and despair. We're reminded then, by Jesus' miracle at the wedding, that he has come not to stand aloof from us, but to have mercy on us, to help us in our need, to change not only water to wine, but despair into hope and weakness into strength. He forgives all things. Our marriages, our parenting, have been cleansed by his blood. Our sins and failures have been blotted out by his blood. He comes into our flesh as a true man, not to condemn us, but in order to forgive us and heal us and give us life. He turns no sinner away. And that's also why the wedding context is of importance for all sinners, from the greatest to the least. God compares himself to a husband, to one who has pledged himself in marriage to sinners, to his church. Which means that even when we have been unfaithful and faithless, he remains faithful. Return to me, he says. So on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana. Jesus' mother came and said to him, They have no wine, which means at minimum the party was soon to be over. But in fact, this would have also been a major embarrassment and shame for the family. Jesus answers enigmatically, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. In John's Gospel, Jesus' hour refers to his death. So what's the connection? Why on earth is Jesus thinking about his death? If we think more deeply, we'll see that the fact the wine has run out is an effect of the curse. One can point to any number of Old Testament texts which describe a lack of wine as divine judgment and an abundance of wine as divine blessing. Or to put things more simply, wine is proof that God loves us and wants us to be happy. <laughs> Eden would have never run out of wine. God did not create a world of lacking. All lacking is a result of sin and the curse. The hour for Jesus to reverse the entire curse had not yet come. That's what he's saying. That would take place at his death and resurrection and come into fullness at his second coming. That's what we're waiting for. Be that as it may, it doesn't mean that he's unwilling to help the couple in front of him. So Mary says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. There were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, John tells us, and each one was holding 20 or 30 gallons. 
So you can see how much wine Jesus made. Fill the jars with water, Jesus said, and they filled them up to the brim. Now Luther takes these stone jars and Jesus filling them up to the brim as an image and symbol of Jesus filling up the law for us, fulfilling the law for us, fulfilling all purification. So Luther writes, For when the heart hears that Christ fulfills the law for us and takes our sin upon himself, it no longer cares that impossible things are demanded by the law. This is because the heart now has in Christ all that the law demands. The law is delightful now and easy, which before was disagreeable, difficult, and impossible, for it lives in the heart by the Spirit. Thus far Luther. And Luther's words also remind us that the water jars were there for the purification of the Jews. The change from water to wine indicates a different and greater purification has come in Christ Jesus. So think of it this way. In terms of his earthly life, Jesus' very first miracle was turning water into wine. And again, in terms of his earthly life, his very last miracle was turning wine into blood. On the night when he was betrayed, he took his cup and said, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the New Testament in my blood. Elsewhere, John tells us that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all our sins. From water to wine, from wine to blood. That is how the miracle at Cana comes to you and to me this very day. We have no wine, which is to say, we lack. If you have any doubts about your lacking, do as the small catechism instructs. Consider your place in life according to the Ten Commandments. Are you a father, a mother, son, daughter, husband, wife, or worker? If you are, then you've sinned. Ask your spouse. Ask your boss. Ask your parents. What kind of sins are common? Disobedience, unfaithfulness, laziness. Anyone found themselves to be hot-tempered from time to time? Rude? Quarrelsome? The truth is, we lack. We have no wine. But our resurrected and living Savior comes to us this very morning and puts his holy cup to our sinful lips. The wine that he gives is the wine of his own blood. As John says, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all our sins. So this is a real thing. And if people actually understood what we were offering here today in Jesus' cup, they would pay any price for it. If all the hurting and suffering and dying people realized that here in this cup of Jesus is the wine of immortality, or if all of the sinful and guilty and despairing people knew that here in this cup of Jesus is the forgiveness of all their sins, 
or if all of the lonely and empty and jaded people understood that here in the cup of Jesus is meaning and purpose, hope in this life and immeasurable joy in the next, if people knew what this cup actually was, they would travel any distance, pay any price, and let absolutely nothing get in the way. But God, our Savior, gives this priceless gift to us this day without cost, for free, because it costs Jesus everything. The blood of Jesus, given and shed for you, cleanses you from all your sins. The blood of Jesus touches your sin-parched lips and sets you right not only in your heart, but right with God, who is greater than your heart. The blood of Jesus gladdens the hearts of men, for it removes the intoxication of sin and meaninglessness and fills us instead with the Holy Spirit and the joys of everlasting life. Our Lord Jesus has indeed saved the best wine for last. First, water to wine, then wine to blood. A greater miracle than the miracle of Cana comes to you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The peace of God which passes all understanding. Keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.